Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are here with you, of course, for one reason and for one reason only. To bring you uh, all the stories of the day, uh, to tell you the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and to cut through all of the clatter that you hear from other places. Uh, all of the other broadcasting media don't seem to know what they're doing. They don't seem to know what a story is, and I'll tell you why. Because they don't go anywhere. They don't talk to anybody. They don't do anything. I was on a bus yesterday. I guarantee you that not one other broadcaster currently sitting in a chair like this, whether on television or radio, has been on a bus in the last 24 hours. I can tell you what people think because I talk to ordinary people. I hear from ordinary people every single day. I was in a restaurant last night talking uh, to the waitress who was from the Czech Republic who was going to Spain for a holiday because she's been working very hard. I talk to people who have real jobs. I talk to people who do real things. I don't sit in a bubble, whether it be in Westminster, whether it be somewhere else in the city, whether it be somewhere in London where everybody's a Ramona. No, what we do here is tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, even if it is sometimes a little bit insurmountable. Coming up this morning uh, we've got plenty to discuss. Could it be the end of the Me Too generation? Because Amber Heard and Johnny Depp have come to the end of their uh, very highly uh, publicised trial uh, in which basically Johnny Depp is accusing her of lying about him. Amber Heard has, I would say, made it completely possible for people to say once and for all, maybe believing women about everything is actually not right. Maybe sometimes women make things up. Do you know what I'm saying? We'll also be talking about half term. The problem for millions of families is they've gone away for a, a week to try and get away from Britain, away from the rain. It was pouring last night, by the way, uh, into the sunshine. I'm afraid has led them to be delayed for hours on end. TUI, the travel company, has been cancelling flights after waiting for telling people to wait for eight hours for a flight. They then cancelled it. We've got hundreds of flights being cancelled every single day. We've got British Airways. We've got EasyJet. We've got Ryanair. All charging absolute fortune to go anywhere. We'll be talking about that. Ross Clark is going to be here telling us about what's going on with the World Health Organization. But most of you out there were going, oh, it's going to be terrible. We're going to be signed up to this drudgery. We're going to have uh, passports, digital passports. The World Health Organization is going to close us down. They're going to get the rules uh, all in their favour. Well, guess what? It didn't happen. I told you it wouldn't happen. I told you not to worry about it. And so it has proved to be the case. Simon Calder will be here as well to tell us what the latest is from the local airports and the Platinum Jubilee celebrations. We will talk to Robert Johnson about that as well as everything else. You are listening to the one and only Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. And so it goes. 
Let us talk to Professor Frank Ferradi, author, sociologist, friend of the show, a man that knows a thing or two about wisdom. Frank, a very good morning to you. Nice to talk to you. Listen, um, I don't want to over-egg the pudding, but I mean, I have to tell you, Frank, one of the reasons that we're so popular here at Talk Radio and Talk TV is that we actually do talk to ordinary people. We do actually find out what ordinary people are thinking, um, as opposed to these kind of elitists who sit in their little Westminster bubble and only talk to each other. And I think that's really important. I do as well. Although I'm an academic and I'm supposed to be sitting in front of my desk all the time, I know for a fact that the times when I I learn a lot is when I go watch football yes. um, every, every second Saturday. It's a time when I you know, go to the pub and to make an effort to be open to new ideas and new kinds of people. And it's amazing. Sometimes you get uh, sort of caught unaware by a person you're chatting to, and they have this incredible insight that, that you don't sim- simply kind of pick up in an academic seminar or you don't see on television, and you realize that there's a lot of wisdom out there, a lot of experience yeah. out there. And unless we absorb that and learn from that, we end up stuck in the past and stuck in the old ways. Yeah. And also we learn how people are actually really struggling, you know, in terms of the money that they're having to pay out for things, in terms of what they're actually not doing or not buying because they now can't afford to do so. You know, um, we're going to be talking later on about the, the, the mad scramble for aeroplanes. People can't get away because the travel companies aren't working properly. You know, we hear from people trying to get to the doctor, trying to get to NHS treatment. They can't do that because there's nobody working. We've got the train strike coming up, you know. And politicians, it seems to me, talk in kind of abstract about these things, but they don't seem to actually know what's happening on the ground. Yeah, I mean, it really breaks my heart when I talk to people. So uh, a couple of days ago, I was talking to one of my friends, Helena, who's got cancer. And uh, when you talk to her, you realize that it could have been something that uh, could have been diagnosed much, much, much earlier. She's been through a situation where a lot of... uh, general practitioners, people working in the National Health Service, uh, seemed to be indifferent to her plight, while others were very nice and kind to her. And you kind of realize that for someone like Helena, but also for other people, life has become this everyday struggle where the public services and the institutions that are around us almost serve the role of an obstacle course, Mm. rather than make life easier for us. Well, that's right. I mean, I saw this at the weekend when we had this ridiculous cycling event, Ride London, which basically closed off the entire city. You know, and people said, oh, do you moan about the marathon as well? Well, actually, the marathon isn't as bad because when the marathons run, they actually pick up uh, the stuff when the when the runners have gone past a particular road and they reopen it. This thing, they kept everything shut literally for 24 hours. They started closing bridges down at midnight the night before and they weren't open again until the next day. Well, even at the best of times, trying to drive in London uh, is a bit of a challenge. And I've stopped uh, taking my car into London because it is so difficult yeah. anywhere with all the roadworks, mm. with all the all these different kind of obstacles that have been created to discourage people from getting around. And it seems to me that there's a kind of uh, utopian ideal that people who run London have, which is not about making life easier in terms of getting around, but it's about working to a blueprint Mm. that they imagine is going to work for us. Exactly right. And the fact remains that that's what they want you to do, though, of course, Frank. They want you to not come in your car. They're trying to convince you, albeit not very subtly, that they don't want you driving. And, I mean, I drive into work every day almost despite the fact that they'd like me not to because it annoys me so much that they want me to stop doing it and I'm just going to keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, you might as well. You might as well uh, sort of give them a the odd finger because yeah. it seems to me if they prevail 
they're going to be such uh, killjoys that they're going to make life extremely boring and sad for many of us. And I think that one of the things that I, I find very, very troubling is that they actually believe that they have the moral high ground. Oh, I know. People like you and me are just so selfish. All that we care about is our own cars and our own movement, not realizing that for many of us, that's how we get by in everyday mm. life. Yeah, and for many people, having a car, particularly outside of London and outside of major cities, it's the only way to get around because the public transportation systems are so bad. I mean, even where my kids live in Sussex, right, there's about two buses an hour, that go, two buses a day, rather, that go to my son's um, uh, sixth form college. And if he misses one in the morning, there isn't another one. And it's ridiculous. It is, and I, and I think that we're now living in a world where the imperative of the environment, the imperative of net zero means that transportation is pretty, pretty low on their uh, set of priorities. It really is. Let's talk a bit about um, the sort of the future, the way things are going. We've got news today, which is good news as far as I'm concerned. The World Health Organization, uh, which again we'll be talking about a little bit later on, uh, has not got the okay to go ahead and sort of take control of every single country in the world. I never thought they would. I never thought it would happen. They'd love to. I'm sure they'd love to. Um, Davos has come and gone. You know, the World Economic Forum has once again failed to mind control the entire world. You know, people worry about the fact that we're all going to be microchipped. You know, why are people so frightened about these big organisations who, for me, are not very efficient? Well, that's the good thing, that they're not very efficient, Mm. because if they were we'd be in trouble, but your instincts are absolutely right. You know, you cannot really control the world according to a plan. No. And even if there are people out there, bad people out there, that are trying to manipulate and shape our lives, they invariably get things wrong. Mm. But nevertheless, there is a problem. And the problem is, is that suddenly we have a confluence of a number of different threats to our way of life. There is the war in the Ukraine. There are, there's the economic shortages, the old shortages, uh, the problems with the supply chain, there's inflation, there's an economic crisis, which is far, far more serious than anything that you and I experienced in our lifetime. Yeah. And while all this is going on, uh, most of our politicians are just as ineffective as these international institutions that you mentioned. Yeah. The thing that really strikes me is that these days, whenever the government sets out to do something, the one thing you can be absolutely certain about is they're not going to realize their objectives. And that's why we have one failed policy after another, which is not good news for many of us. No, I think that's right. And we have probably at the, at the lowest point now reached uh, where people have literally zero faith in their political leaders. You know, certainly in this country, I can't speak for every other country, but I think America is probably the same. Uh, certainly France would appear to have very little faith in Emmanuel Macron. You know, people are at their sort of wits end with politicians. And, and I mean, I keep wondering why we keep being asked the question, should we not have better moral leadership from Downing Street? Well, to me, we have never had moral leadership from, from Downing Street. And why should we have? Well, not moral leadership, but certainly strong political direction. I think uh, you raise an important problem, which is that when people are become so cynical and distrustful, quite rightly in many cases, of politicians, there's a danger that democracy itself will become under threat because people begin to switch off. They're not going to take elections seriously. They imagine, you know, what's the point of, of going out to vote? They lose their you know, the capacity to have a voice. And that could be a real problem. And it seems to me that what we should be thinking about is how can we recreate a world where, to some extent, we are able to have people around us who really represent our interests, who speak on our behalf, 
rather than the individuals that are around at the moment who seem to be entirely obsessed with their holidays, with their parties, with their own personal lives. Mm. Yes, exactly right. And as far as the way that we're going is concerned, I mean, I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about Boris Johnson because I try not to every single day because, you know, the man doesn't appear to have a plan of any kind whatsoever. But it is seemingly one of the most rudderless governments we've had for a while, isn't it? And it is. And, and that's a tragedy because, uh, you know, when uh, he came in, he basically said, we'll get Brexit done. And he went some way towards that. Uh, he was reasonably all right compared to other governments in the way that he handled the pandemic, mm. although he was criticized. And to be, to be sure, he's not all that bad in the way he's responding to Ukraine and the way the kind of leadership he's mm. giving them. But in terms of domestic politics, in terms of the issues that affect their everyday lives, he seems to be singularly incompetent. And the government itself just changes its mind day to day. So it is very dispiriting to see this government being so unable to do anything effective that makes our lives a little bit better, that deals with the economic difficulties that we're confronted with. Yes, I think that's right. Stay where you are, Frank, if you wouldn't mind. We've got to take a little break. We're going to talk some more about the cost of living crisis and what the government is doing to help you and what the government should be doing. Lots more of you to talk to, of course, as well. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, all the way through until one o'clock when it's time for, of course, Ian Collins, who will be with you uh, until four, and then Kevin O'Sullivan from four until seven. Loads going on, lots to talk about. We're talking to Professor Frank Ferradi, uh, author and sociologist, of course. Frank, um, let's talk a little bit about what happened last week. Rishi Sunak coming out with his £21 billion sort of rescue package. A lot of people said, yeah, the only person he's rescuing here is uh, Boris Johnson. He's not actually rescuing the rest of the country. But it does disturb me slightly uh, as somebody who's not, you know, I would not describe myself as a right winger. Some people think I am. I'm really not. I'm not party political. But I just think giving away free money to people because they haven't got enough of it is a mistake massively. Well, I think it was very much a, a panic-like reaction on the part of uh, um, the government. Uh, to some extent, maybe they're trying to distract attention from some of their other problems. Mm. Uh, but it seems to me that when you, uh, in a sense, have an untargeted subsidization of individuals in the way that it's being done, it's not going to be beneficial neither to the country nor necessarily even to the people who mm. receive the money. Right. Because all that it does in this way is, in a sense, uh, uh, encourage uh, inflation. It will intensify inflationary uh, sort of pressures precisely at a time when we're going to be using our resources, our national resources, to invest in jobs in the future, to invest in infrastructure. It seems to me that uh, uh, a, a sensible economic policy, a sensible economic response to the difficulties we face is to make investments in our, you know, in, our, in our economy, to make our economy more productive so that we're able to produce more resources for everybody mm. uh, rather than imagine that just simply pumping money in the way that they've done into the hands of individuals is going to make very much of a difference. It might make, uh, might make a difference for a couple of weeks or so but when the prices begin to go up, you'll realize that the extra money you received is going to, uh, isn't going to even pay for what you've been able to buy with it beforehand. No, of course. And because in the end, all you're doing is you're perpetuating the kind of profiteering that the oil companies are doing by giving them the money, paying people to pay them the high extortionate prices that they're charging. Um, and it's costing us, the taxpayer, more and more and more. 
it's that's very true and and you know a much more sensible uh, reaction would have been to have a proper price cap on on the on, on increases in price uh, i think that we need to look at the energy companies and other sectors a little bit more carefully mm. because you know they are having a really nice time while everybody else is is suffering but more importantly we need a comprehensive economic policy that adopts a balanced approach towards meeting the needs of those individuals who are most uh, in a sense most vulnerable to economic pressures mm. whilst at the same time remembering that we need to uh, plan for the future uh, rather than have this short termist reactive economic policy we're having absolutely right and talking of um, boris johnson the relentless kind of anti boris campaign continues despite you know the sue gray report coming out despite a police investigation despite all of the uh, things that have happened recently which have basically cleared him uh, aside from one particular ticket that he got that he's admitted getting um, we've now got today william hague saying the prime minister is in real trouble uh, and could face a no confidence vote next week I don't believe any of this noise around Boris Johnson. I don't believe that if there even was going to be a, a vote of no confidence, that he wouldn't. I'm sure he would win it. Well, at the moment, he would very clearly win it. He's very lucky. He's got no um, opposite opponents, serious opponents, waiting in the wings. Uh, and I think what's also uh, troublesome about this focus on party, this obsession with what goes on in Downing Street is that it distracts from the very real failures he has had in the domain of policy. Yeah. The fact that he hasn't really done very much, that this is a government that is continually finding excuses as to why this and that you know, hasn't been done just yet. So in a sense, what we have is the worst of all possible situations, mm. a government that is proving to be increasingly more and more incompetent in, 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 the, in the domestic domain, whilst at the same time we have this drama about uh, essentially and not a very important set of events that occur in Downing Street, which completely distract from the the troubles and the problems that most of us have in our everyday life. Yeah. But again, like all things um, political, and if you're going to be, um, you know, a survivor in politics, you have to go with the flow and and count your blessings when things come around that have nothing to do with you. Like, for example, this weekend, it's the Jubilee. There's going to be lots of bunting, lots of flags, lots of singing, lots of fly-pass by the Red Arrows. And Boris can quite rightly kind of stand and look up to the sky and go, this is Great Britain, and he'll probably do well there. I think he will. I, I think he's been extraordinarily lucky uh, in, in recent years. I mean, he's been very, very lucky to, be, uh, to have been able to demonstrate what a great statesman he is in relation to Ukraine. Uh, I think he's been very, very lucky that he managed to pull off Brexit. Hmm. But it seems to me that gradually... Uh, his reputation is being diminished hmm. slowly but surely. And I think it's only a matter of time before his luck begins to, uh, in a sense, run out. Not just yet, because he hasn't got very much, uh, he hasn't got opponents that are serious. He's blessed by a Labour Party leader that uh, has got, got no credibility <laughs> within the nation. He's basically a non-entity yes. that isn't going to set the world on fire. So, you know, at the moment he's all right, but... He is losing his authority bit by bit, and that's going to have a cumulative impact in the medium term and even in, especially in the long yeah. run. Well, I said last week that he feels like he's sort of had his ninth life. If he was a cat, this is the last go round for him. Yeah, I think he's the kind of guy that's going to have you know, 16 or 17 lives. Yeah, he's, he's been extraordinarily, for, extraordinarily fortunate all throughout his career, and uh, I, I would imagine that he'll be around for a while. Yeah. But, but the, at the price of the, of the Conservative Party retaining its credibility and at the price 
of the nation having to put up with a, with a leader that isn't getting important stuff done. Right. And meanwhile, um, the British public kind of continues to put up with the rising prices of everything, the rising cost of fuel. You know, there seems to be no end to it. Taxes going up. You know, it's all very well saying, well, you can all have 400 quid in the autumn, but some people won't make it to the autumn. I mean, that's what I really worry about. You talk to so many people that are not just making it up, but they are really struggling mm. making and especially if you have children. I mean, yeah. the kind of choices you have to make between you know buying them stuff or buying food is, is really, really heartbreaking. Mm. And I think that this can go on for a little while. People can put up with this economic crisis that they're facing, but sooner or later, there's going to be trouble. A lot of people are going to kick back. A lot of people are going to react maybe even take matters into their own hands. And the one thing that you do here, I don't know about you, but when you talk to people on the street, a lot of people are saying, we need a new party. Mm. We need some new way of giving ourselves a voice. Yeah. And I think that demand for a voice, for a, a new kind of representation, will, will increase as the economic problems become more and more unmanageable. Yeah, because as they do become more and more un unmanageable, the politicians that lead us look ever more distracted and disjointed from the rest of us, you know, because they've got themselves uh, an expenses account uh, where they can charge pretty much everything that they do to us, where they've got heating allowances to, to, to pay to heat their own homes, where they've got second home allowances so they can still, you know, charge mortgages and things to, to us. You know, they seem very much kind of insulated from reality. They do. And I get very angry when I hear all these uh, media types get up and say, oh, uh, why are we so obsessed with cheap food? Mm. You know, you know, why don't we uh, uh, ensure that people eat healthily and end up? You know, why don't we pay more for food? Mm. It's better for the environment or public oh, health. Yeah. Get, get to hell! You know, <laughs> they don't realize that people do need you know food prices go go down mm. quite substantially. Mm. So their world is one where they can afford to pay a lot of money for this special kind of uh, healthy food and all the rest of that. But the, the rest of society uh, is looking at the prices very, very carefully every time they go shopping in the supermarket. Exactly right. Very good to talk to you, Frank. Thanks, as ever, for spending some time with us. Professor Frank Ferrady, uh, who's, of course, an author and a sociologist, talking a great deal of common sense there. Because you must feel, if you are a member of this voting public out there in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, you must feel disenfranchised from the people who we are paying to run the country. Because guess what? They're not running it very well, are they? This is Talk TV. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Lots for us to do, much time to do it in. Pete says the best way to travel in central London these days is to walk, although that does mean trying to avoid the e-scooter menace. Well, that's the trouble. Avoiding the e-scooter menace, avoiding the cyclists, avoiding, you know, all sorts of drama on the streets where there's more tourists than you can shake a stick at now. They've all started coming back. And you know what tourists are like. They're like stopping in the middle of the pavement for no apparent reason. And you just bump into them. So uh, walking is one option. However, it isn't actually necessarily the best option. Angela says this, I went on a London bus last week. A young man was playing violent videos on his phone and no one fancied telling him to turn it down. A woman was red-faced coughing and the seats were damp. Mike, you were very lucky to gain insight and wisdom on your journey. Well, I mean, all I'm saying is, is that, you know, there are an awful lot of people uh, who travel by bus. There are an awful lot of people who travel by public transport, but not very many people that do what I do actually do it. Kevin O'Sullivan's been in touch to so say he gets on the bus every day. 
which would presumably explain why he's always late. But that's another story. Uh, let's talk to Ross Clark, lead writer for The Spectator, The Daily Telegraph and various other outlets, because the World Health Organization, believe it or not, it says here, has lost all credibility. <laughs> Did it ever have any? Ross, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Hello. Um, I'm, I'm always keen to talk about the World Health Organization and how useless it is as an organization. I was worried to see that an awful lot of people were concerned that they were going to sort of take over every single country's pandemic response and they were going to suddenly make us all sign a treaty, which would mean that our own governments weren't responsible for how we were then going to be told to behave. That all seems to have gone by the wayside now. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the, the latest development, what I was writing about on Sunday, is the this sort of election of the World Health Organization's executive board. Now, mm. this is 12 countries which sort of effectively run the World Health Organization. And, um, you know, lo and behold, China's name has appeared on it. Well, China... Um, There's a surprise. ...important country, but, um, uh, you know, you've just got to look. What's happened? We had a pandemic which um, is very likely unleashed on the world unwittingly, I have to say, accusing them of doing deliberately by um, Chinese research into coronaviruses. Yeah. It is extremely likely that this um, pandemic originated in, in a laboratory leak in, in Wuhan, um, where they were researching coronaviruses rather than in the, um, from wild animals, bats and so on, which, yeah. which are not so present in the city. Um, and, and China has sort of blocked, uh, obstructed um, the World Health Organization in, in its efforts to trace the origin of um, uh, of COVID. And yet here it is being put, you know, in this executive position uh, on the World Health Organization. By contrast, there is only one European country on that list, on that executive board, which is Slovakia. Mm which is a rather small, and well, no disrespect to Slovakians, but, it, you know, it's a small and fairly uh, less powerful yeah. country than the Britain, Germany, France, right. the country you might expect But then again, I mean, well, it's a bit like the UN, though, isn't it? I mean, the United Nations is one of those organisations where everybody sort of looks to, for, if you like, for a sort of neutral view of something that's going on. But people just ignore it at will. Uh, governments ignore it if they feel like it. Uh, they invoke sort of UN charters if they want to. But more or less, the UN, if it didn't exist, uh, wouldn't be missed, would it? Um, I, I mean, I'm... I'm... <laughs> I'm all in favour of having, I think we do need a, a World Health Organisation or a, a body which um, coordinates responses to medical emergencies like um, pandemics and so on. And, and in the past, it has done some good work in sort of eradicating smallpox and so on. But um, it has become rather politicised, it's become rather dominated by China. And, you know, I'm not in favour of Western countries doing what Donald Trump did and just withdrawing from it. But, um, you know, we should be uh, standing, we're protesting. Why are we not on that executive board? Why is there no other European, major European country on, on that executive board? Why is it being allowed to be run by, a, um, a, you know, China, which is possibly responsible for the... Uh, for the pandemic and um you know if we can't resolve those issues then i think we have to set up an alternative body right but i mean you have to say the world health organization as an entity pretty useless i mean they were the people that told us at the very start of the pandemic that the um that the coronavirus that was found in the bats could not jump species so we're very unlikely uh, to infect human beings we got that wrong uh, then they started talking about whether or not you should wear a mask 
gave strict instructions to everybody not to wear a mask and then some weeks later changed their mind and said, oh, you should really wear a mask. You know, their medical expertise seems to be in question to me. Well, I, th- I think one of the, the main things at the, 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 the beginning of the pandemic was their opposition to closing borders. Mm. And sort of when America did it, when European countries started to do it, um, you know, they were dead against closing borders. And of course, you know, that that's the way that the virus was yeah. around the world. I mean, had we at the beginning shut off routes from China and so we wouldn't necessarily have stopped the virus because I think it was possibly already here anyway because it spreads asymptomatically. But we certainly have slowed slowed it down. Mm. And um, yeah, there's sort of various sort of rather perverse um, uh, decisions, um, announcements, policies which the World Health Organization has followed. Through, sure. Through. It doesn't sound, though, Ross, as though you're one of those who thinks that there's some kind of dr- deadly, sinister plan afoot uh, to somehow make us all kowtow to a world organization which has only bad things to tell us. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I don't think that um, China unleashed this um, virus upon the world um, but I do think, um, uh, you know, at least the, uh, deliberately, I mean, a, a laboratory accident to yeah. work on coronaviruses, that's what I suspect. Yes. It's likely explanation. But um, I, I think that, um, you know, what, what is going on is that China obviously wants to push its power and influence around the world, and it is using the World Health Organization as a, a means mm. of that and the rest of the world should really push back against that quite let's talk about rishi sunak um and the nfts because uh, most people i think now know what nfts are non-fungible um assets of some one kind or another um tokens what uh, what's going on here well well rishi sunak has sort of announced that britain the british state should issue its own non-fungible tokens that these are sort of digital representations of um, paintings, objects, and so on. In this case, it would be a sort of non-fungible token of a commemorative coin or something. And you think, you know, why is the Treasury getting diverted onto this kind of rubbish hmm. when uh, you know we have so many other <laughs> problems to sort out? I mean, these non-fungible tokens are really just... Um, the damage to reputation, because NFTs are really just... Um, a sort of reinvention of the age-old Ponzi scheme, yes. where you, um, you redistribute wealth from the poor suckers who are late onto the um, bandwagon and t- towards the people who were early onto it. And, you know, these things have no intrinsic value. They're completely useless. Right. The only reason for buying them is because they think some other sucker will pay a higher price for them at a future date. Well, it's a bit like cryptocurrency, which seems to exist purely and simply to make people very, very wealthy who buy loads of it and watch the price go up and then sell it, uh, whereby everybody else doesn't make any money. Well, absolutely. And they've got the same thing, blockchain technology yeah. behind them. So that same thing. Um, yeah, and you say, well, why on earth is the Treasury sort of um, ruining the... the uh, risking the reputation mm. of... Uh, British state by getting involved in this yes. kind of thing. Very good question. I don't know the answer to it. Ross, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Ross Clark there, lead writer for The Spectator, amongst many other organisations and outlets that he has worked for. Um, many of you want to talk to me, do make the call. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. We're going to be talking travel. We're going to be talking trains, planes and automobiles and why it's so hard to get anywhere at the moment. This is Talk TV. 
Veggie Talk. Brain Talk. Unrivaled Talk. Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. See it. Hear it. Think it. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The only place to get the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We're going to talk about fuel coming up in this hour because front page of Daily Mail this morning. Save us from the £100 tank of fuel, Rishi. Uh, I think for some people, it's already a bit late for that because if you have to have to have a, quite a big fuel tank, you will already be paying more than 100 quid to fill it up. Uh, the cost of fuel is rising and rising and rising. There's more pressure now coming uh, from not just the people of this country, but backbenchers on the Tory party, uh, not least chairman of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, Craig McKinley, who's going to talk to us in a moment, uh, that we need to get the prices down. Because guess what? 2021, the average price of a litre of petrol was 131 uh, pence uh, and 60, 131.64. It's now 182.59. And actually, the fuel duty is not much different, but the VAT on that uh, is bringing in a bucket load of money uh, to the Treasury and to Rishi Sunak. So uh, we need to make, uh, get those prices down. The 5p off uh, the fuel duty didn't really make much difference to many people at all. And many people are pretty dismayed at how much money they're having to pay to put fuel in their cars. 0344 499 And quite a lot's going to have to be done, is it not? Um, about the profiteering that is being done, not just by the oil companies, but by the people that run an awful lot of the petrol stations, right? Uh, I've got this from um, uh, Graham, who says, Mike, I'm not really a subject for today, but having spent this week so far trying to sort out parking fines, I'm getting more and more annoyed. Does anyone know why these parking cowboys are allowed access to DVLA records? Well, that's a good question. I'll ask Craig McKinley, but I'm pretty sure the answer to that is the DVLA is selling them uh, access to people's records, and that's how they get them. It's as simple as that. It's a commercial transaction. Uh, let's say very good afternoon to Craig McKinley. Craig, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, Mike. Yeah, you've come up with a lot of uh, very interesting topics there. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, motorite, motoring for for so many people, despite what we hear from the from the activists in Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop All and all that, you know, by far and away, the most popular way of getting around this country is by car. Because, as you will know, outside of London and outside of any major city, it's the only way to get around. Well, it is indeed. I always say the, the motor vehicle is probably the most liberating invention that, uh, that uh, humankind has ever come up with. Yes. It allows you to go and pick up that bag of sand at Wix or whatever uh, your preferred DIY supplier is. <laughs> and it, it just gives flexibility to go when you want, door to door. And, and to me, as I say, the most liberating invention ever. And we seem to be at war with motorists as a government. And you mentioned the, you, know, you call them the car parking cowboys. You know, I've got a row going on myself at the moment. My wife went to one of these out-of-town shopping centres with loads of shops there. Right. And she spent three hours and 12 minutes there. And the small writing on the board said, thou shalt not stay more than three hours. Oh so God. she's got a fine and we're in, involved with that. I mean, to be honest, I mean, only without wishing to sound uh, too sexist here, uh, only a woman could spend three hours plus shopping. I mean, I'm in and out, I uh, get what I want, I'm gone. You know, three hours in a shop I, would drive me insane. Well, I think there was an M&S there, so they stopped for lunch and <laughs> oh, all of, of that sort of stuff. You yeah. know? So, but, yeah, it is, it was, but it is ludicrous. I mean, why three hours? I mean, I know what the reasoning is behind it, because they don't want people to park there uh, and commute to work and come home in the evening. I get that. But if it's 12 minutes over, I mean, seriously, they should give them like half an hour's grace, shouldn't they? Well, we're, we're now in a situation where they want, they want her to prove 
all of the vouchers for all the spending she did that day so that she can prove that she was being an active and, uh, you know, and, and good spending shopper. Yeah. But I mean, it's just it's just aggro. And we wonder why at times uh, we're suffering from you know, increased stress and mental health problems. This is just aggravation. Yes. But then, you know, on the on the general motoring point, uh, we've got new, you know, low traffic neighborhoods. Uh, we have, you know, cycle lanes that nobody uses mm. and we get sort of fines for everything. And uh, you know, the motorist is really under stress. And, and for many people who, who can't work at home, and I would say many of the lower paid cannot work at home no. because of the nature of their job, uh, they're now suffering the highest fuel prices we've ever, ever had. And mm. I've, um, I've discussed the fuel prices and the tax take. You know, I'm very opposed to the windfall tax that was yes. proposed last week or the energy levy or, or whatever it's called. Uh, because it just says so many bad things about doing business in Britain. You know, do well, uh, we might penalise right. you. Uh, the you know the, the dividend returns from many of these oil companies. I mean, I don't don't fly a flag for them, uh, but they're fundamental to many pension funds. And also, these oil companies, we're begging them, pleading with them to go gangbusters, to go and find new oil and gas in the North Sea, and to make big investments in the net zero, you know, solar and hydrogen and all the rest of it. So taking money out of their pocket does not seem to me to be a very sensible thing to do. No. Uh, and, and my view is the Chancellor was already receiving a pretty hefty windfall out of the increased price of fuel because of the VAT on the entirety of it, including the fuel duty. That bears VAT as well. Uh, there's an additional VAT windfall on the domestic fuel increase with the increased cap up to £1971. That all bears VAT at 5%. Now, my calculation uh, means he's getting about another billion and a half out of that uh, across uh, electricity, uh, oil and gas. Uh, that is for domestic supply. Uh, and also the oil companies, the beastly oil companies with their big profits this year, you know, never mind that you'd lost mm. 45 billion during uh, the COVID year. But this year, very good profits, of course. There's going to be an additional 8 billion of uh, corporation tax and the and the already 40% tax that they pay um, that is coming to the Treasury as well. And then that's without uh, the freezing of the, uh, the various uh, thresholds for... Um, income tax, so more people are being taken into higher thresholds, and, and general what we call financial drag mm. across many of these thresholds. So there is going to be a lot more money coming into the Treasury. That's already been been shown that the tax receipts are pretty healthy. So I would have thought there are other ways of getting money out to people uh, to do the best that we can to uh, help the cost of living crisis. But new taxes, I'm sorry, are not one of them. No. And we're getting ourselves into a rather perverse situation where we're taxing people highly, including those on, on fairly modest rates of pay, and then giving them a handout mm. um, uh, through, through another means. I would have thought far more elegant, far more simple and more sensible, just don't tax people as much in the first place. Well, quite. Place. And also yeah. the point about rising fuel costs is that by taxing uh, uh, the, the oil companies with a windfall tax, that doesn't actually make the product any cheaper. So people are still having to pay an awful lot more money than they should be paying for a product that could be cheaper if we took the tax off it. Well, of course, we had the five five pence. Um, yeah, but I mean, that, that meant nothing really, did it? Well, I, I'm, I've, I've got my own criticisms of, of some of the oil retailers I, on the, the pump uh, the pump prices. I think they just swallowed it and didn't do do much else and mm. passed it on. Uh, there's been reports by Fair Fuel UK, uh, backed up by other industry uh, analysts, that are suggesting that uh, on the forecourt there is a profit at the moment of just a shade under 19 pence a litre, right. whereas from two, up to 2018, uh, that usual profit per 
per litre was about nine pence. So is there profiteering going on? Uh, I've struggled to find which bit of the chain. Is it the oil company? Mm. Is it the refiner? Is it the distributor or is it the retailer? But yes, there are... I think it's uh, all of the above there. I think I can help you out with that one, Steve. I think it's everybody. Craig, rather. But but in terms, I've done a... I mean, I I love the back of the fag packet sort of calculations. I've done one there. (laughs) as to um, you know what that fuel duty cut has actually meant. Right. And you're just working on £1.80 a litre, yeah. uh, which is sort of the diesel price thereabouts, perhaps even 182 at the moment. Uh, the Treasury is getting 82.95 pence of VAT duty and all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then it will get corporation tax or income tax uh, on the profits that those companies uh, derive. So it's getting a very hefty rate, but 82.95 pence. And that's at the reduced uh, five pence off duty rate. Now, funnily enough, when it was at one pounds fifty a litre uh, some time ago, uh, with the higher rate of duty at fifty seven point nine five pence a litre, the Treasury was getting exactly the same amount. Mm. And really, really perversely, um, one when it's at one pounds forty, the Treasury was only getting about a penny and a half less. Right. So we had that fuel tax um, duty reduction. But it's been swallowed up because VAT is applicable on everything, the wholesale price and, and everything else. So the Treasury is actually not given anything up at all. It's getting exactly the same amount. Hmm. So I would have thought there's scope to take a bit more fuel duty off. Uh, then we can have the argument about domestic fuel. Should we be taking off some of these environmental levies? Yes. And just putting it onto general taxation because these are contracts that have to be paid for. But I would have thought that would... Um, will certainly depress the inflation pressures because we have to realise that if there are inflation pressures, uh, that means the Bank of England will reach for its very blunt lever, the only one it has, and that's higher interest rates. And that can be very serious uh, across the entirety of the economy. So, yeah, lots of measures. Uh, we're just sort of taking tax out and respinning it back uh, as handouts and grants. You yeah. know, welcome as they are, especially for those at the lower end of the spectrum. Uh, but for, you know, the what we used to call the squeeze middle, they often get nothing at all. No, well, that um, is that is a massive problem. And Jeremy Carl talks about this a lot, uh, the people who are just about managing. Because there's an awful lot of people who say to me, look, I don't want the £400. I don't need that to be given to me, so don't bother. But the government's basically said, look, it's more complicated to, to stop giving it to some people, and it's a lot easier just to give it to everyone. And why don't you just give it to charity? Well, I mean, it's almost as if they're making money in the basement of 10 Downing Street. You know, it's our money, it's our borrowing, it's our future that they're mortgaging, I mean, it's our taxes that are going to go up and we say no thanks no i get that mike but i mean if you're trying to create a system that gets money out fairly quickly fairly elegantly then universality is an easier way of doing it obviously i I don't particularly want people to be pouring well it is well it is if you can just make up the numbers it is if you can just invent money but you know i haven't got unending amounts of money it might surprise you to know i couldn't give everybody a pound that lives in this country uh, so i can't do it i don't have the option but the government has the option because they can just make it up well yes as i say the 400 pound going out to everybody uh, it i mean in some ways universal support i think is is can be a good thing i mean what why is it that we shouldn't all get a little bit of something uh, but you're quite right. It would be better targeted at those um, who, who need it most. But I don't want, as I say, form filling assessments 
and all of that going on, it is sometimes easier just to pay it out. Uh, and I know that there was that suggestion coming out of the Treasury that if you really don't need it, give it to charity. But uh, yeah, I, I get where you're going, but I can't think of an easier way of targeting that money uh, without a, a lot more aggravation, mm. probably a lot more administrative cost. But so I it has elegance, even though it is it is rough around the edges. It, it certainly is rough around the edges, but also I think it, it gives people a further impression. And I'm going to hold you just over the break because we've got to stop in a minute. I want to ask you a couple of other things. But, but it gives people the impression, which they're more and more convinced of, that the people running this country are completely out of touch with the people living in it. You know, you can't just give 400 quid to charity because you've been given free money from the government. It's a kind of bizarre equation to make. It's a strange equivalence to say to people, well, if you don't need it, give it to somebody else. Like, there's all this money floating around. Nobody's got any money. And suddenly we're giving free money to people who don't want it so that they can give it to somebody else who maybe doesn't need it. I mean, it makes no sense to me. But, Craig, stay with us for a moment. We'll come back to you. Uh, Chairman of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, Conservative MP, of course, Craig McKinley. Uh, I inexplicably called him Steve earlier. I don't know why I did that. Uh, just a little a bubble of madness. I mean, you'd be surprised if I got more wrong, wouldn't you? Uh, this is, of course, Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're talking to Craig McKinley, MP, Chairman of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group. Let me just ask you about the weekend that's coming up, Craig. We've got uh, uh, the Jubilee, of course. We've got a few people who are perhaps not as patriotic uh, as you and I. Uh, I noticed that uh, Suella Braverman uh, was back on your uh, on your Twitter feed having a go at Emily Thornberry and saying she's about as patriotic as Lenin uh, was about Russia. Uh, which is quite funny. Um, what do you think is wrong with Labour Party and the flag? They don't seem to ever get it right, do they? Uh, no, I think on many, many issues, they're completely out of touch with their uh, traditional voters. And I think that was that was shown to be the case in 2019 when we, when we made those big breakthroughs. Um, there's nothing wrong with being patriotic. Be proud of being patriotic. And it's always rather odd, but if you go abroad, I mean, I, I went to Turkey some uh, some weeks ago, right. Um, and, you know, when I was lucky enough to do a bit more travel, it, uh, other countries always seem to be very proud of their flag. You see it all over the place uh, and it is respected. But we've we've somehow, um, well, some some quarters, certainly not you and I, Mike, they, they see it as some sort of grubby item that mm. should be, you know, taken down and be embarrassed. Of. I'm not embarrassed about Britain's past. I'm certainly very hopeful about Britain's future. Yeah. Uh, it, it's done very good things. And, yeah, of course, the, history, the history will say that, well, that was not, not quite right in when you look at it in comparison with how we perceive the world today. Yeah, but, but that, I mean, you know, we don't need to beat ourselves up about it, do we? I mean, it's ludicrous for me the way that we sort of somehow flagellate ourselves and go, oh, that was terrible. Well, it wasn't that terrible, actually. And it was going on everywhere. It wasn't as if, you know, the Brits were the main exponents of cruelty. You know, it was unfortunately not a very nice time to be alive for an awful lot of people, well, I mean, including, the, thing, including the people of this country, by the way. Well, this is the mad thing, of course, Mike. You, you know, we're trying to assess things of the past by the, you know, the judgments of today. Yeah. You know, no doubt when, uh, you know, if and when or perhaps probably not, uh, there's a statue of me somewhere. It will be taken <laughs> down in grand fury in 150 years time because I'm in favour of, uh, you know, hydrocarbons and a, and a sensible path to net zero rather than the madness yes. that we're on. Well, maybe so, yeah, I'll, I'll probably have the, you know, the eggs thrown at my you know, my statue in 150 years time and uh, and all the rest of it. But, but you know, uh, there, but there is, <laughs> there is this very odd sort of vein of lefty thinking, isn't there? Where people were criticising the other day Regent Street and all the union flags that were up in Regent Street saying it looked like Nazi Germany. I mean, what's wrong with them? I, I don't know. I mean, at times I, you know, you read the Twitter feed. Twitter, unfortunately, seems to be inhabited by, by, by people who do just seem to have a very <laughs> different view of the world. Yeah. And I do try and struggle to think, 
you know, I'm trying to see your point of view. I'm trying to understand what drives you into some of this, uh, you know, this frenzy of, of, of hatred and, and outpouring. And I'm sorry, I just can't get there. Uh, you know, let them inhabit their space and, and do what they like. But, uh, you know, we saw something rather odd last night when Nadim Zahawi was at a, uh, a university. Yes, we played that out earlier, the Tory, uh, Tory scum crowd, right? Well, that's right. I mean, it seems, I don't know if, if, if uh, order, order, Guido is to be believed, but it seems it was uh, Yvette Cooper's son might have been part of it. Oh, really? Well. I haven't seen that yeah. bit. Interesting. But, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what drives these people. Let's just get on with life. Uh, I, I was sort of reminiscing the other day with someone about the sort of 1980s. Yes. And we are saying, wasn't it gentle? Wasn't it nice? Wasn't it sort of, I'll tell you who it was. I was on the train with Suggs from uh, Madness, Madness. Oh, yeah. And he was sitting opposite me. So we were sort of chewing the cud a bit. Right. And we'd, it just seemed uh, just more comfortable somehow. We didn't have this, you know, I'm against you and I'm, yeah. I'm a victim and I'm a, I'm a minority of this. Let's stop all that. We're all British. We're all very capable of getting on with one another. And I think that would be a, a happier and more settled place. But perhaps I'm just living in the past, Mike. And well, listen, uh, you probably inhabit a similar. Space uh, well, indeed, I absolutely. I mean, it's like the old joke, isn't it? If you remember the '80s, you weren't really there. But I mean, um, if uh, if Suggs uh, is to be believed, then I think I think you're absolutely right. Because the other thing is, um, these uh, maniacs up in uh, uh, wherever it was when they were shouting at Nadim Zahawi were accusing him of the ha- the heinous crime of saying that a woman uh, was an adult human female. You know, I sorry, I didn't realise that was uh, actually a crime. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I we inhabit this world now, Mike, and I have to be very, very careful of course, <laughs> the sort of language I use. But you know, I've often wondered where is this committee that says thou shalt not use these terminology right. that were perfectly acceptable in a last year or five years ago. I don't know where this committee is. I'd love to meet it. Yes, and I, I don't know where it gets its ideas from. Um, I mean, I have not a hateful bone in my body, but uh, there will be many people who inhabit Twitter and other. Well, that uh, can't be true. But that can't be true because you're a Tory MP. Therefore, you must be filled with hate, Craig. Let me ask you one final question. Andrew Bridgen today seems to be the latest to join the uh, at the moment still, as far as I'm aware, single figured uh, Tories who want to see the end of Boris Johnson's premiership. Um, What's going on? Well, I don't know. I mean, to me, everybody's waiting for that Sue Gray report. And frankly, um, if we were waiting for you know big smoking guns in there, uh, what was in that report was none of that right. really. It was no more than we knew. So now it's a cover up, though, isn't it? Well, that's the latest they're saying that you know that it was all been influenced and, and Zubray's been uh, lent upon. I don't believe that for one moment. Uh, the woman is very independent. She's very uh, respected, and I think she will she will uh, analyse things without fear or favour. Is my view. Mm. But um, you know, we had some of the events were trailed in the press and reported in the press the day after, like yeah. you know the, the birthday party gate that was actually in the Times the day after and. Right. You know, at the time, nobody really turned a hair. Right. I mean, I did make the point in Parliament last week at uh, questions after the Sue Gray report. I, I said to the Prime Minister, I said, well, looking at those rather bland photos of a, <laughs> uh, a jug of or, um, orange juice and apple it juice horrendous. And, a, and a turned up bit of uh, birthday cake, uh, I had to say that the, the opportunity for a, for a decent vindaloo and a beer uh, in Durham with Keir Starmer looked infinitely more desirable. The company wouldn't have been, no. but the catering certainly looked so. But uh, uh, And also we had the incident with Nicola Sturgeon, who mm. had the most draconian uh, COVID rules. As you know, Mike, I voted against just about all of them during the period. I mean, she had a very, um, you know, on or off rule. 
that thou shalt wear a mask in a public place. And there she was, photographed under her own rules without a mask. What happened? Outpourings of, you know, she must resign. No, none of it. She received just a letter of advice from the police force. No further action. In my view, yeah, there there was some appalling behaviour in Downing Street. Uh, It seems much of it went on when the the, the PM was nowhere there. He just wasn't there at all. Now, that's an issue of the HR and, and everything else that's going on in Downing Street. And I'm fairly confident that that has changed. Um, but you know we, we are where we are now. There was some appalling behaviour. I think there's been changes. Yeah. There's been massive due apologies. Is this really enough to get rid of a prime minister over? Well, I, I personally don't think so because uh, I think even if we appointed, um, you know, the, the Pope as PM, I think he'd be falling short in some people's eyes because I don't think anybody can uh, hold up to this new moral high ground that uh, we've created in public office. Um, yeah, we're all infallible. Oh, none of us are perfect. And, um, you know, we, we know that the PM has got some great fizz when he's uh, when he's on the stump. Mm. And uh, I'm happy to see that come through again. And events two years ago, I don't know, Mike, I, I think I'm done with this now. Yeah, I think you, you speak uh, for an awful lot of people in the country, Craig, as well. Craig McKinley, MP, chairman of Net Zero Scrutiny Group, of course, uh, and having had enough of Partygate, I think, like most of us have. Let's have a word with John in Oxfordshire. Hello, John. Good morning, Graham. Uh, good morning. Your petition yes. on uh, British Airways. Yes. I, was, I said to your uh, young lady on the switchboard, put my name down. I will. Definitely, 100%. Yes. It's not right, is it, that they can call themselves British Airways? No. One, they're not British, and two, it's a shambles. When you think back to the BOAC. Yes, BEA. Yeah. I remember all that. Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. You're quite right to, to back me, and thank you very much indeed. We'll see if we can get that organised, actually, sometime this week. Because I think it's right that we, uh, as members of this country, who can quite rightly call ourselves British, we should not be being hijacked by some organisation that bought a company, albeit that they're now based in Qatar and Spain, as uh, Simon Calder told us, but they can still call it British Airways and then run it into the ground and make it an embarrassment to the nation. I say just call it something else. Take the British out of it or else we're nicking it back. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Lots more of you to talk to. Many more of you will get on between now uh, and the end of the show when Ian Collins will come in, 03444991000. Right now, we're going to speak to Kelly J. Keane because you might have remembered earlier on in the show, uh, we were playing you that uh, piece of video from the incident up in uh, Warwick University, I think it was, uh, where basically the um, uh, uh, the crowd gathered around Nadim Zahawi and started chanting Tory scum at him because he had the temerity to suggest uh, that basically a woman was a uh, an adult, a human female. Apparently that's now a crime. Let's talk to Kelly J. Keane because uh, she's a writer for The Spectator, founder of Standing for Women, because Douglas Murray written an interesting piece today uh, in The Times about how the trial between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard could be the end of the Me Too era. Um, Kelly J., a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Hi, good afternoon. Nice to see you. Um, just an update on the old um, uh, situation up at Warwick University with Nadine Zahawi. We're, we're being told, I think it's Guido that's reporting, that Yvette Cooper's son might have been one of those involved uh, as the trans activist. I mean, these people are getting more and more insane as the weeks go by, aren't they? Well, what a proud moment for any mum. Uh, <laughs> your child going out to university and uh, intimidating a member of parliament. That, Yeah, so what a source of endless pride and joy. Yes, absolutely. Of course, they're all terribly white and middle class looking as well. 
Well, of course, that's because they've got nothing better to do. No, they haven't. What do you make, I don't know if you've had a chance to read Douglas Murray's piece today about the Me Too era, because there was a time when, um, I suppose after the Harvey Weinstein stuff, that people were saying, women in particular were saying, you must believe all women. Any woman who makes an allegation about rape or makes an allegation about sexual assault must be believed. The police were even saying it, that, you know, absolutely they should not ever um, dismiss any woman saying something as if it might not be true. Yeah, it's just really difficult, isn't it? I guess the pendulum had to swing um, in order for it to rest somewhere more rational and reasonable. Mm. And I think the backdrop of Believe All Women is that often women weren't believed at all. Yes. And so hopefully uh, we are now in a place where rational, reasonable um, beliefs are prevailing. Mm. Because there's no doubt, is there, that certainly in this country, and I can't speak for what it's like in America, but certainly in this country, there's been a history of the police basically screwing it up when it comes to investigations of rape, when it comes to prosecutions of rape. They don't seem to get it right very often. Yeah, I mean, gosh, it's a difficult uh, crime, isn't it? Because it does actually come down to a version of events as as told by two people. Now, mm. I don't mean that a rapist doesn't know that he's actually committed a rape. Yeah. I just mean that for the police, it's a quite a difficult crime, I would think. Um, rather than finding some stolen jewels in the back of a car, yes, it's a little bit difficult to find. But I'm hoping the police are working through it. They work closely with women's groups in order to find a way to actually get those convictions. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that they've got it all wrong in the one direction. They've, they've sometimes got it wrong in both directions. You know, they prosecuted people who weren't guilty and who were later proved in court to be innocent because of text messages or things that were sent uh, that clearly showed that it was not what they were suggesting that the charge should say. Uh, and by the same token, they've treated an awful lot of women with scant regard who have been genuinely sort of traumatised. Yeah, it is pretty atrocious. The conviction rate for rape in this country mm. is is really, really low. Right. Um, and I do think the police have had a history of not taking it seriously. But uh, we live in hope. Yes. And what's your view of, of these women who talk about how dangerous it is all the time to walk the streets and how men have to be better um, at looking after women or at least teaching each other not to be mean and not to wolf whistle and not to um, you know, talk to women if they're not asked beforehand? Well... Yeah, wolf whistling and uh, sort of unwanted attention is not great. I mean, I've had a fair share of it myself, even when I'm walking my kids to school. Yeah. You know, it's not very nice no. uh, to be t walking into Tesco's with your kids and some bloke telling his son whether or not and what he'd like to do to you. Mm. Um, so that's not very nice. And I think unwanted attention, I think we all know when it's in exchange. I'm pretty sure if a man gave me a wink and a nudge and he was really, really handsome and I was single... I don't expect that would be too bad, but most of us can read situations. Mm. As far as walking alone, I'm a, I'm a bad person to ask because I don't like walking on my own. Mm. I grew up in a really small town where everybody knew my family. Yeah. And so walking alone was not very precarious, but I've lived in London. I would not have taken the tube home. So, And I've got lots of friends who are strident feminists who say that it is their right to walk home, but I'm like, I'm five foot one. I ain't running very fast. Yeah. No. No, quite. And this is the trouble. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I, I sort of cringe when I see men uh, on television in particular sort of defending wolf whistling and saying it's just a harmless bit of fun. I mean, it's not something I would ever do. It's certainly not something I would ever encourage my sons to do. And in fact, quite the reverse, you know, so it's a shame that people still think it's all right. Um, 
but whether you are then going to start making it kind of you know a crime something that the police can knock on your mm. door and prosecute you for i think it's just one of those things that we need to to tell people just to stop doing it i mean there's now a sign for example at the bottom of the escalator at london bridge station which says unwanted touching is sexual harassment and i'm going well I, I, surely everybody knows that you have to put a sign up I know, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, I, I sort of think about the whole wolf whistling as a hate crime um, or harassment. You know, come on now. Let's let's just stop that. The mm. police have, have got barely enough time to, to, to solve actual crime. Uh, I don't believe in hate crime at all, so I certainly wasn't a supporter of misogyny as a hate crime. Mm. I think that's a, a ridiculous idea that wouldn't have helped women in any way, shape or form. No, I don't think it would. And I mean, what what do you say now as a as a woman living in in twenty twenty two? Is it worse than it was? Is it better than it was? I mean, are men kind of less well behaved around women? Do you think? Gosh, I don't know because the pornification of our society and young men's brains. I think I was very lucky that I grew up in an age where. We didn't have the internet. You know, I'm a really happy, nearly 48-year-old woman. So I'm really happy to be this age. I think being a teenage girl or a teenage boy um, or even someone in your 20s mm. is hard, hard work, uh, never escaping the the grip of the over-sexualisation of our society. Yes. Yeah, no, I've got a 17-year-old son and, you know, he's got a girlfriend and it's kind of, you know, it's a bit cringy sometimes watching all of them gathering around together but I suppose that's as it should be I mean they, they shouldn't want me hanging around either but you know what I mean it's kind of like I dread to think what it must be like to be that age now well you can't escape your friends so if you have an argument with your friend or if you have an argument with your boyfriend you've got a million different ways to interpret every text that comes through <laughs> whether or not it comes through when it's read right. how long he took to respond after he read it I mean goodness me i would not be a teenager for all the world no, right now no absolutely right well it's great to talk to you kelly j Keane. thank you very much indeed for the spectator also founder of standing for women um according to uh, douglas murray the me too era is now probably pretty much over his argument is that amber heard has done no favors to women uh, in this society because most people don't seem to believe a word that she says i don't even know anymore whether what she says is the truth i couldn't literally tell you she's either an incredibly good actress or uh some of the things that she said happened to her actually did happen to her it's almost impossible to know only really she and johnny depp know what really happened and we may never know do you know what i mean oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand steve says always great to listen to simon calder on talk tv a vital source of information that's been very helpful over the last few months and Craig McKinley uh, getting some love as well. How true what Craig McKinley said. Well said, Ray, the 1980s. I think he's got a point. Uh, we've got much more to do. Uh, not much more time to do it in. Ian Collins will be here. Kevin O'Sullivan's up at four o'clock, of course. I'm on the talk later. I can't remember if I mentioned that. Uh, that's at nine o'clock tonight after Piers Morgan. This is, of course, Talk TV. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.